Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT podcast. Your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Most practitioners to systemic therapy Even newbies out there have heard of emotionally focused therapy, EFT, but do you know its counterpart, emotionally focused family therapy, EFFT, follows many of the same principles and practices of EFT to restore connection and promote resilience in family relationships, with the principal goal being to reestablish more secure family patterns where attachment and caregiving responses are effective and emotional bonds are repaired. These resources inform a network of security that provide the flexibility and closeness necessary for families to promote both individual growth and meaningful relationships across the generations. So today on the AMFT podcast, we're going to explore the world of emotionally focused family therapy with expert and innovator Jim Furrow now an adjunct faculty member at Seattle University. Dr. Furrow is a recognized leader and contributor to the practice of EFT and EFFT. He is a contributing author and editor of five EFT texts, including Emotionally Focused Family Therapy, Restoring Connection and Promoting Resilience, and Becoming an Emotionally Focused Therapist, The Workbook. His research on couple therapy and positive youth development are found in field-leading publications. He is a clinical fellow and an approved supervisor with the AAMFT. He's a certified family life educator, and Jim co-founded the Los Angeles Center for Emotionally Focused Therapy and is a ICEEFT certified therapist, supervisor, and trainer. An all-around calming presence He was a great guest and has the ability to distill down the essence of the model and how it's both similar and different from the practice of EFT with couples. I enjoyed the interview. I learned a lot and I hope you will too. We will be back at the conclusion. Are progress notes stressing you out? Good documentation is essential for a high standard of care but the time and effort involved can feel overwhelming. If you've experienced that overwhelm, Chronicler can help. Chronicler's intuitive note builder lets you compose excellent progress notes right in your browser, often in three minutes or less. Sign up today for a two-week free trial at therapyshelf.com. That's therapyshelf.com and see how easy high-quality progress notes can be. So happy to be joined today on the AMFT podcast by Jim Furrow, a leader in emotionally focused family therapy, or as we'll abbreviate EFFT today. And Jim, you've listened to the show, so you know the first question is always about your therapeutic origin story, your journey into systemic thinking, and then specifically EFT. So great to have you. Can't wait to hear because I actually do not know your origin story. So be new for me. Great, Eli. It's a pleasure and a uh, privilege to be with you this morning to have a bit of conversation about emotionally focused family therapy. And I guess when you asked that question and I was thinking about it, I had to reflect on it, on the fact that as a kid, I often could be found taking things apart and then trying to put them back together. I just had this insatiable curiosity and trying kind of an intuition of wanting to try to understand how things worked. And that didn't always go well. In fact, some of the things that I took apart didn't go back together, which is probably why 
I'm a family therapist and not an engineer. But uh, it was always a desire to try to understand not only things, but relationships. And for me, I was studying journalism and mass communication in my undergraduate experience. And I had an opportunity to take an elective course in family communication. And I was curious about that. And that was where I first came across this idea of communication and feedback loops and the idea of something being more than the sum of its parts and really started to see possibility of systems. And it made sense for me because at that period in my life, I had gone through a loss in my family and my family had changed in ways that I couldn't quite put together. Being able to look at how we talked about loss or didn't talk about loss and how we tried to make meaning of that together started this kind of conversation in my own mind about how do you connect in a family? How do you make sense and meaning together when things are going well, but especially when things go in unexpected directions? So that kind of set me on a course of becoming a family therapist. And in my graduate school experience, some of the work I was doing was with children who were diagnosed with attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder. And I was, had the privilege of working with a multi-level team and school and psychiatrist. And we had a pretty robust approach to trying to help these children find their way and navigate their way through their own growing up with a sense of confidence, even though they've met challenge. And in that environment, I was again met with this idea of here's some challenge and difficulty and a family is facing it with all these resources, but it's being caught in perpetual bad weather. And I live in Seattle now and moved up here from LA. And I think in Los Angeles, we have sunshine six, over 300 days a year. And in Seattle, it's more like gray, at least 200 days a year or so it seems. And like that, that changes the climate and these, it changes your experience. It changes how you feel. It changes how you see yourself. And I think that was one of the things that I was noticing in these families that was a challenge was that it was like they were caught in a negative climate all the time. And it wasn't just about behaviors and it wasn't just about understanding and it wasn't just about performance, but it was how I see myself and how I see you. And in many cases, for many of these families, that was this kind of negative loop that kept reoccurring and taking out the resources that you would otherwise find in families facing difficulties with school or social challenges. And so that got my mind thinking about the ways in which my work needed to transcend just a new understanding, needed to transcend just a new set of practices. But I needed to change the environment. I needed to change the climate. And uh, at the same time, like I was a growing therapist, I was trying to figure out how to do this. And the sessions that I felt the best about, the work that I felt the most effective with, often included these moments of ascending emotional experience where something shifted and it shifted at an emotional level and it shifted in relationship between people and within people. And what I've come now or through the understanding of my colleagues and the field is we talk about this as a corrective emotional experience, but that's what I was drawn to. And I realized at the time, my training had helped me be able to see emotional patterns, be able to label them, to name them, but not necessarily to change them. And especially not to help me know how to use emotion as a agent of change. I stumbled across an article by Sue Johnson and Les Greenberg and emotionally focused therapy. And I thought, oh, okay, this is what I've been looking for, a path, a map, a direction, some guidance on how to use emotion for change in relationship. And that started this kind of 30 year journey that I've been on and trying to understand an awareness and deepen an understanding of connection. And then what I think is a profound process of change. Your story is like so many model developers or experts 
in this systemic therapy and that we have a personal experience, much like you had a personal loss at an early age, as I discovered kind of family therapy and healing. And I always thought systemically without ever having the systemic language. I've actually known many MFTs that have journalism or communications background and it makes sense. And then gravitating toward graduate school, having these clinical experiences in when you find a model, it has to be, as we talk about on the show many times, a good fit for your own worldview. And then you need to see something powerful happen in the room that really solidifies it. And anybody that's been a part of an emotionally focused change event, whether with couples or families, knows how powerful that can be. So your story will speak to a lot of our listeners. And it's interesting when we think of this, we do on the show talk about the classic family therapy and studying feedback loops and used to be believed your origin, your systemic thinkers, your Bateson group, your MRI, and they would say, oh, we study the feedback loops, but emotion is it's within the black box. And that's actually not good. We don't want to know that gets in the way of change. And now certainly the field has uh, changed and then certainly emotion is a very powerful, in fact, lasting change. You affect the doing, thinking, but certainly the feeling as well. So we've come a long way. So let's start We'll just talk about the role of emotion in family therapy, and then we can kind of you can shift into talking about some of the assumptions about having an emotionally focused family therapy lens. Great. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that when we think about the role of emotion, and I couldn't agree with you more in terms of the way in which it's been in the background, sort of this figure ground relationship that it's always been in the background of the conversation in family therapy, but really through the nineties and into the two thousands, the decade of the brain, the decade of emotion, did we really find a way to talk about it in the foreground? Sue Johnson had an opportunity to interview Sal Mnuchin at a, the networker symposium in 2017. And when she talked with him about family, I thought this was interesting that he said ignoring emotion was the greatest mistake we made in family therapy. And of course he's talking and being interviewed by Sue Johnson and where emotion is the focus. And I just thought that was interesting that with that kind of perspective, we could look back through the field and clearly assumptions of structural therapy are woven throughout EFT as we think about patterns, as we think about enactment, and we've learned greatly from Sal Mnuchin and his colleagues. But this idea of the prominence and prevalence of emotion and human experience and that as an opportunity to organize around that has largely been a quiet voice in the course of family therapy, one that's often distrusted. And so I think one of the things that I see in training family therapists is really trusting emotion and the idea that we can access and expand and organize emotional experience in a way that we get greater coherence of someone's own experience and greater congruence within someone's experience through the felt security they find in a relationship where they're seen, heard, and felt. Yeah, I love how you say that. Many of our listeners, okay, they know the three stages, nine steps of EFT, and they may know really important pieces like the difference between primary and secondary emotion, but they think of this model solely as couples modality. How did you start thinking about applying it to families and then tell us the major differences between EFFT and traditional emotionally focused couples therapy. So Sue Johnson and her colleagues at the Ottawa Couple Family Ther Institute began looking at this kind of question of how attachment relationships in families could be influenced, impacted by this powerful model with couples. And so my colleague Gail Palmer was working alongside Sue and they did a kind of pilot study looking at eating disorders, adolescent girls who were diagnosed with bulimia and applied these EFT principles to working with these families. And that really were the initial seeds of the conversation that evolved between Gail and Sue and George Fowler and Lisa Palmer Olson, who were all part of this effort to try to articulate 
in more specific terms what EFT looks like with families. Because there are some similarities. First, I think is that we're working with a developmental system. And while the patterns of interaction between parents and children are reciprocal, and we can understand those in classic systemic terms, they're not mutual. So they're reciprocal, but not mutual. So we think about the relationships as being hierarchical or that parents have a different role and a different responsibility in that relationship than children do. And while there's always a goal of connection, in our couples' work, our goal is organized around intimacy and the mutual impacts of connection in that relationship, where our goal in family therapy, especially from an EFFT perspective, or the goal of families in general, is the simple way of saying it is that you want to create a felt sense of belonging. It's a developmental system. Our primary goal is around growth, not just intimacy or closeness. So that's a key difference because one of the things that we're going to be doing is privileging, resourcing the caregiving system, resourcing parents and helping parents shift to a more open stance before we go to a child's vulnerability and their attachment needs. So we flip it the other way around, even though it's a reciprocal relationship, what we tend to find is that children who risk their vulnerability with parents who have, are closed in their own orientation toward their children are just going to recapitulate the same pattern over and over again. So we want to go in and support the parents and help them find new resources and find their emotional balance so that they can engage their children differently. We don't talk about pursuers and withdrawers. We talk about parents who are over or under responsive. And so we think about those relationships and those type of relationships. It's also one of the things that's unique, I think, about EFT is the generational focus that we're dealing with a generational system and that the caregiving a parent brings into, and when I talk about parents, I don't mean just biological parents, but those attachment figures in a child's life. So recognizing that many families, it can involve a variety of different caregivers, but the ones that really matter, the caregiving is shaped by their own experience of caregiving, as well as by their experience with their child in the present moment. But it's also what they bring to that interaction is, how they see caregiving in light of what they have themselves received. And in some cases, they're trying to replicate what they received. In some cases, they're trying to overcome what they lived through. But that older story, that generational experience is something that we're always working with. It's like relational software, right? That they've just been coded into their experience of connection. And they're trying to bring that in relevant ways to their child, often most often with the intention of doing something better for their children. A EFT therapist or someone applying EFT to families has to be flexible because there's more relationships involved. There are different configurations. You've got developmental issues that change. You have attachment relationships that are specific, that they're dyadic. They happen between a mom and a son, a daughter and a dad. But they're also influenced by the other relationships that surround them. So who we see, when we see them, how we organize the work can change family to family. Whereas with couples work, you pretty much are working with the same two people in that relationship or that couple relationship or intimate partnership with some degree of consistency. And the last thing is just that family work is fast. They're often in fewer sessions than couples. Often the rigidity in family systems is less than what you might see in a couple who's been in the same stuck spot for years. Often the blocks that families run into are related to a situational issue, like a child who's not going to school or a problem that they're having in a specific relationship or a loss that just happened. And so our work is more time limited and it tends to go more quickly. So you have to be fast and flexible. You're reading my mind because I was thinking when I've done this work with couples and then 
taken some of these principles that we're going to talk about today and adapt them to working with families, especially families with teenagers. You're right. I work with a lot of couples that I call them stably disconnected. They've been in these pursuer, distancer patterns for a long time, but they're not imminently in crisis or going to separate a divorce. Whereas if you have a family with a teenager, usually there is some important event or some crisis that has led to the work and you don't have as much time to get the work going. And you also have parents because they're coming to a crisis and they are like, fix my kid or we need help. So I guess these next two questions are about getting a buy-in. You got parents that just had a crisis with a teenager and they're like, fix my kid. They're not really wanting to connect their blueprint as far as their relationship with their parents or their attachment style. They just want help for the kid. So how do you work with the fix my kid type of parents? There's four things that we think about and trying to change that mindset. And I think the first one is to see the parent well and empathize with their struggle. Because a lot of that energy that they bring in that's organized around change my child is it's difficult, right? And they feel alone in that. And one of the things we believe is that by resourcing the parent system or the caregiving system, we create more flexibility. So that begins with being able to see the parent's struggle. The second part of that and related to that is to see their importance. They have a unique role in that child's life. They're an attachment figure. The child depends on them uniquely. And so we want to help them see that we see the importance and the significance that they play in their child, the unique role that they have in this relationship. And then third and probably critical, and there are a number of attachment-related Guy Diamond and others who follow along have a similar kind of emphasis and focus, is to really be able to catch their caregiving intention and to recognize that part of that energy, part of that effort, and all that intention directed toward change is an expression of the care that they feel deeply, almost in their bodies, if you will, about this the concern of their child. So we want to align with that caregiving intention. We want to help them see that we see that even in those difficult moments that end in painful places, that it's coming from a deep intent to care and do well by their child. And as we do that, then like empathizing with the parents, seeing their importance, catching their caregiving intention, we want to frame that in terms of an interaction. So I'll often just ask a parent in a moment, like, tell me about the last time you really felt, I need to change this. This needs to change. Just tell me what happened. So I get the story, I get the narrative, I get the play by play, and that creates an opportunity for me to start to help the parent see that this is something that happened in an interaction. This is something that happens in a relationship. And that's where I can be most relevant to help them find a different way to deal with the problem together. Right. Because we can all agree, even a lot of times, if the parents are slightly divided on how they view their child or children or the child or teen doesn't necessarily agree and probably most times doesn't agree with the parent of what the issue is. Pretty much everybody in the room can agree they don't like the current cycle and what it looks like. So the flip of that question is also the reluctant teenager. Many times the IP, the identified patient, how do you sell it, the model or the way of working to the teenager who doesn't want to share their feelings with their parent because A, it doesn't feel safe and B, they don't think the parent will understand even if they did share. Exactly. So how do we sell it? I think we don't. I think there's some wisdom and not trying to sell the idea that we're going to lead with vulnerability with children, let's say an adolescent who is pretty convinced that they're not seen or they're not sure they matter, that their parent is more concerned about their performance rather than their person. So in one way, yeah, let's, in some ways, it's really a question of where we start. And I think one of typical to FT's approach to emotion, our first move is acceptance of someone's experience. An adolescent kid, their starting point may be mistrust. Their starting point may be blame because behind the blame is a felt sense of shame. They don't feel acceptable. They don't feel 
even like disclosing that vulnerability would be a safe or good idea because it would just reconfirm what they already fear. So we have to create a kind of felt sense of safety. And we do that first by helping shift the parents toward a more open stance. But then also as we're going through the process, connecting with the adolescent, even early on, we're trying to see the dilemma that they're in and understand that their resistance has good reason and that we're not going to push them toward being more vulnerable than makes sense in the moment. And I think this is a key distinction too, is that when you think about working with emotion, you're, you start first and foremost with experience. So it's really not about labeling feelings or getting an adolescent to use feeling language. That may be helpful at some point, but it's really starts with seeing them in their context, seeing them in their experience being curious with them about what it's like with them and honor the resistance itself because there's good reasons for it. And we want to understand what those good reasons are. And we also want to be able to put in place something that they can rely on in place of that resistance. And that's, and I think that begins with a trusting relationship with us. Now, one of the challenges in doing family therapy, historically, you have people that have very different experiences, as we've been saying. So as the therapist, you have to hold space, validate everybody's reality, and try to put it in a workable frame to tie it into goals and alliances, tasks, goals, and bonds. There's this great EFT study that is now about 25 years old talking about the task dimension of therapy, which is a big part of the alliance, is a very essential in EFT that you have to buy into this way of working that the therapist is structuring for the client. So let's talk about how emotionally focused family therapists can hold space for everybody and try to tie something together under some common banner. I think we unnecessarily track systems and break things down because especially young therapists are uncomfortable with conflict or intense expressed emotions. So they break it down. I'll work with the teenager and work with the parents and sometimes they can get them back together. Sometimes they never get them back together. Can you break down the family system into smaller units before bringing everybody back together? What does the model say about how to work in that kind of scenario? Yeah, great questions. I think one of the things that I found helpful about EFT is, as Sue Johnson and others have talked about the map for the territory, you've got a through line that you're trying to follow and engaging experience, organizing experience, and using experience in new ways where relationships become the resources for resilience for families. So you want to start with where, as you said, where families are, and that is often different people in the room having different experiences of the same relationship or what they call a family. And so from an assessment perspective, one of the things that we think about is whether we start with the parents or we start with the family as a whole. And when we talk about family, I know there's this notion that you need to get everybody in the room to see the system. And we would nuance that a bit and say, we want to get everyone who's relevant to the presenting problem in the family, in the room, at least for a conversation, because we want to understand and get an assessment of the family's emotional climate and how they talk together or don't talk together or what the experience of that is like. And we'll ask a question sometimes, what's it like to be you in this family? And that's just in, and I want to hear from each one of you. So it's an opportunity to get everybody on the dance floor. It's an opportunity to hear everybody's experience. And I'm thinking about one family we worked with where the one parent said stressed and the eight-year-old child said enthusiastic. And it was just because he had learned that word this week in school and he was like really proud to use that word. And then we moved the lens around this family and it landed last on this quiet, sullen, adolescent boy who was squished into the back corner of the couch with every message saying, I don't want to be here. This is ridiculous. This is irrelevant. And we asked him, what, a, what word would he describe it? And he said, it's a living hell. His older sister reacted because he said the word hell and the parents shifted. And there was just this huge wave of discomfort that rolled through that moment. And I thought, ah, 
yeah, this is family therapy, right? That's the beauty of it is that you start to see that everybody's in a different place and everybody is trying to find their way and the struggle to be seen and known and feel valued and receive the care one needs is a challenge. And so getting a window into the family experience, and as I mentioned earlier, one of the things we're paying attention to is where are the parents and this, their unique role in this system. So we're going whether it's one parent or two, or like that caregiving system, it might be an extended family member. We're going to have a session where we begin to understand and what it's like for them and what their concerns are and tune into that level of the system. And then we're also going to assess and have a session where we're going to reach out to the siblings and try a sibling system and to see, assess the resources that are there and the ways in which siblings are there for each other. And also to send a counter message to the idea that while one child might be in a level of distress, the conversation that we're having is about the family as a whole and not just the one person having a problem. So that's how we organize the initial assessment phase. And we're also, I want to say one last thing about that is that we're trying to see more and more, we're trying to see how people express their emotion and how they talk about their attachment relationships and the nature of our own alliance with this family through their context. Because not every family is coming from the same place, culturally, socio-demographically, and that culture, that context can really matter, particularly when you're talking about vulnerability, especially if your assumption is we're going to get changed through vulnerability and we're going to work with a family who doesn't feel safe in their neighborhood, doesn't feel safe in their school, in their community how we work with vulnerability really needs to take into account the context that people come from. And that begins with our relationship and being able to see that context. Yes. We've talked about assessment. Now let's talk about some of the key interventions in working from an emotionally focused framework with families. And those of you who are familiar with EFT and especially as it's been discussed in attachment theory and practice, which was Sue Johnson's recent text where she basically describes EFT as one model that can be relevant in three modalities. And one way of telling that story is to say that whether you're working with individuals or couples or families, the EFT therapist is using these five essential moves. She calls them the EFT tango because of her love for Argentinian tango and the elegance of these sort of five moves that can look somewhat different at different times, but it's accessing the present process. It's ordering and assembling emotional experience so that there's a new awareness, a new experience, and then engaging that, having people enact that experience, and then processing the enactment of a new experience and a new meaning a new understanding a new connection and then integrating that and synthesizing that and making meaning of that and crafting that with say a previous pattern or problem so those sort of five moves of moving into the present moment ordering and organizing expanding accessing deepening emotion and then engaging it processing it and then integrating it is what an eft therapist is doing over and over again and in my mind, that's doing two simple things. It's eliciting experience, expanding it, and then uh, engaging it and processing the impact of that. That's how we work with emotion. I'm giving you a basic answer. Let me give you a more specific example, though, to working with families. Because one of the things that we're doing, and I reflected this previously when we were talking about securing parental buy-in, is this idea that we're often working with parental caregiving intention. And one of the ways that we're often using that from an emotionally focused perspective is like one of the things that we want to help a parent do is tune in to their own vulnerability around caregiving. Now that might be sadness at a distance in a relationship that they might have with their daughter or son. It might be fear that they don't have the influence or they don't know what to do to help 
their child get back on track and they see the future and they're scared to death about what this is going to mean for their child. And that fear and that sadness, those underlying emotions really are connected to the parent's intention to care for their child. And when we talk about this, when we do training, one of the things that often makes people nervous is when you start talking about working with a parent's primary emotion in front of their child. And that for good reasons, because the assumption is, or the concern is that we might be trying to elicit the child's empathy and compassion for their parents' pain or sadness or fear. And that's just going to invite parentification, right? The child taking responsibility, which is absolutely the opposite of what we're looking for. So what becomes really important in those moments is to be able to reframe those underlying emotions, that fear that sadness as a clear signal of the parent's care and a clear signal of the child's importance, the clear signal about the importance of the relationship between the parent and the child. And if one of the things that we're trying to do in EFT is help parents see their children better at an emotional level, one route that we have available to us, and I would argue probably the most powerful route that we have available, is their own compassion their own empathy, their own soft feelings, for their own tenderness for their child. It's like that moment, like if we're talking about a parent who's holding their child for the first time, embracing their child for the first time. Maybe it's in a labor delivery room. Maybe it's in they're meeting their through an adoption process. It's the first time that they hold them, the first time they connect with them in some surreal physical way. The tenderness of their heart in that moment is what we're wanting to help them find so that they can begin to see themselves more clearly. They can begin to see their child more clearly. And in my mind, like being able to find that emotional experience and then be able to reframe that as their caregiving begins to put more resources online for them to be more flexible, more open, more engaged, more curious to something that they're experiencing in their child that they don't understand or feel threatened by. You give the scenario the fear of the child being parentified if the parent shows vulnerability. What about the reverse of that, Jim? If the parent shows vulnerability or expresses some guilt or shame for something they did as a parent or something that happened in their youth before they were parents, and then the teen uses that vulnerability against the parent to disparage or demean because a lot of parents would say i can't be vulnerable about my kid because they're going to use that against me and that makes good sense so one of the things we're thinking about as we work with parental vulnerability is when is that task that happens with the child present and when is that a focus that we do in resourcing the caregiving system with just the parents alone particularly when you raise the issue of shame because some parents are really stuck in a place of helplessness around the shame that they feel over mistakes they may have made and regrets that they have in their own parenting. And so if that's inflexible and that's a really stuck spot, it doesn't do anyone favors to try to process through that with the child present in the room. And we might get a sense of that and assess that with the child present, but we're going to work with that separately. And it goes to your point about kind of the flexibility in EFT. We're making these judgment calls about, okay, where is the most distressed dyad? Where is the block in the relationship? And how do we resource that block with resources of security and availability first from the therapist, and then being able to use that in the parent-child interaction? That being said, the other side of that is a child who's using their parent's vulnerability against them is I think we need to get curious around that with that child as that's a a protest move or a move toward mistrust. It's, yeah, it's given them maybe some additional leverage that they think, but if we hang out with them in those efforts, one of the things we're trying to do is also provide a level of safety and connection that they can begin to explore why they need to do that, why that's so important. And in some ways, one of the things we're often doing in EFT is trying to decriminalize these action tendencies that 
people have in moments of distress. And that's just another example of that. I think it's a question of how the therapist shows up in those moments, both for the parent and the child. Let's talk about showing up because I was mentioning earlier when I talked about therapist worldview, I think if you look at the world through an attachment lens and you've been exposed to powerful moments of emotional healing, this is a good model for you. Let's talk about the other qualities that a successful, emotionally focused family therapist needs to have. Clearly, in listening to your voice this hour, you are very soothing and calm, and I know that to be part of something that makes you effective, and our listeners can hear that. So that's probably one of them, but I'm curious what you think in all your years of experience, both as a clinician, as a master trainer, evolving the model, what do you think are the most important qualities emotionally focused family therapists should have? Thank you, Eli. Thank you for those kind words. Uh, Yeah. My experience, the first and foremost challenge in practicing EFT is trusting emotion in the moment. I think working with families and what that elicits in terms of our own experience of being vulnerable in relationships where we need to depend on others for our own growth, our own development, it lives in us. And that's both a resource that can fine-tune our empathy and our attunement and our awareness, but we have to keep our own emotional balance as we do that. And so I think self-awareness and our own relationship with emotion is a critical element and it's part of the work. I think it's not something that you can do offline. It's something that you experience with the families that you work with, that you find moments of courage to step into the fear. I'm thinking about my colleagues, Lisa Palmer Olson and George Fowler, working with a family after 20 years of a suicide event where one of the children had died and the parent and daughter had come home to discover their sibling and their son who was no longer alive in a really kind of horrific scene. And that family, didn't talk about, right? They went through the emotions of dealing with all that was related to that, but at an emotional level, how do you find words? How does anyone find words for a moment like that? We're not prepared for that. So like when I think about what you're talking about and the, the role of the therapist and what this work can invite us into. It's a moment of courage where both Lisa and George held a space for this family to be able to, some 20 years later, walk into and through those moments together and to find compassion, caring, just sharing about the experience, grieving, making new meaning together. But that took the therapist's courage to walk into those moments that had been shut away and in many ways had defined the relationships in instance and disconnection. And I think when a therapist is able to find confidence in knowing that we can face that fear together and we can together face the dragon, as Sue would say, we will come different. And the more experience we have with families, the more experience we have with parents, the more experience we have with teens and being able to walk into these places with them. And we do it together. I said, George and Lisa did this together. We wrote this book together. Much of our work as therapists happens in private sessions, but what we really need is the support and the community of our profession. And so appreciate this podcast and all the others who've shared their stories and their experience, their wisdom, because this is really work we do together. It's really work we do as a community. I think that is one of the greatest selling points of the model, both EFT and EFFT is the community of people that practice and learn from each other. I always teach EFT late in both my traditional models course and in my couples course, because even if you understand The dance moves, as Sue would say, it is timing. It is the paradoxical nature, as we've talked about this hour of feeling, especially with families, that you don't have a lot of time, but slowing down, holding space, validating that experience. It is powerful when it works, but also very challenging for young therapists many times 
that don't have enough repetitions under their belt and aren't master clinician with years and years of experience in therapy hours log because it is something that even if you can understand conceptually making it happen in the room being able to have enough clinical and life experience is beautiful when it comes together i think this is a model that grows as you grow in your life experience and something that you should not give up on if especially if you view the world through these lenses of emotion and attachment because it is so powerful but also so complex to pull off so i wonder if you could speak to both the power the beauty but also the challenge of hanging in there if you're a young or not even that young of a therapist but you're just starting your journey into this and you love it but you feel discouraged by your lack of ability to pull it off so if you could talk about that and then give us as you mentioned jim at the end here best resources for our listeners who want to learn more and get more experience training in emotionally focused family therapy yeah, absolutely. I think there's a way in which FT is understood top down, but learned bottom up. And it's a kind of integration that Dan Siegel writes and speaks about where we bring our understanding into online experience in the moment. And that's a complex process, particularly since a lot of our responses to emotion are automated and we can't just override them with new information. We need felt understanding. And how do we arrive at that? Some of that is through practice. And as you were saying, it's some of this is about showing up and taking risk and learning with our clients about their experience. And some of that's just intuitive to the process of therapy. But in EFT, I think some of this is guided by lessons learned from others who go before us. Like Gail Palmer has just been quite a remarkable guide for me and some of our work together and just seeing and learning together about we've had the opportunity to do co-therapy together and and just being able to talk about and share the work that we've done together and where we get stuck and the curiosity that comes along with that to look at each other's work to get feedback on this process and expert feedback people who can look at this and see it from an informed place and help us see more about our work. I think that's an important part of learning is that whole being able to look at your work, record your work, have somebody watch it with you and be able to talk about the process of therapy, not just our, how we make meaning about it, but what's actually happening in the moment. And as far as learning, I think attachment theory and practice is a great resource for really getting the bird's eye view of EFT and particularly as it relates to family. Gail Palmer has a video that is on our isf.com site that gives a good example of EFT in action, EFFT in action, a good example of her work with a difficult family system. I think watching others, good examples of that. We have different training programs that are designed to give first an orientation to the process and then work at specific competencies. So there's EFT training classes that are also offered as a way to systematically organize an understanding and an engagement and a process of learning that starts not just with that kind of intellectual understanding, but with a practical kind of bottom up, this is how we do it. And, and then there are some supervision groups around it. and the, those resources you can find on EFFT.org. There's different resources that we put in place to try to scaffold and support this kind of growth of using emotion to promote change to, through relationships, promote resilience in families and the challenges that they face. So you are such an articulate a speaker and proponent of this very powerful model and way of working. Thank you so much for being a guest. There will be uh, listeners who want to continue the dialogue. What is the best way to reach you, Jim, if our listeners want to follow up? Yeah, you can reach me at e info at EFFT.org. I'd be happy to have continue the conversation or point you to resources that would help you grow in your work with families. It's such important work because one of the things we're doing, Eli, is we're impacting relationships that set trajectories for the future and creating resources that will pay dividends in families for years to come. 
Eli back with you, bringing to a close another informative installment of the AAMFT podcast. That was great, Jim. Like I said, a, a very soothing presence, and I learned a lot. If you want to learn more about emotionally focused family therapy, look no further than EFFT.org, Emotionally Focused Therapy for Families, where you'll find everything from training events, other resources, online tips. Right now on the front page, I see Level 1 Training, Emotionally Focused Family Therapy, Restoring Connections and Promoting Resilience with Jim and EFT Master Trainer Gail Palmer, who was referenced. Also, you can go back to our archives in the AMFT podcast. Our first guest, which kicked off the podcast in January of 2019, was Sue Johnson herself, a two-part interview, episodes one and two, first in our Pioneer series, and certainly worth a listen to learn about the person behind the model and Sue's interesting background, her own attachment style with her caregivers, her father and her mother. Also referenced by Jim, Guy Diamond and his work in attachment-based therapy, working with self-harming adolescents and families. You can go to episode 16 if you want to know more about attachment-based family therapy. Wherever you find your favorite podcast, I like Apple Podcasts, Spotify. You can also go to see our most recent batch of episodes at aamft.org. Please, we rely on you, the listener, helps us identify emerging topics in the field of systemic therapy. Get a hold of me, Eli at North Star Counseling Center.com. You can go to www.elikaram, that's E-L-I-K-A-R-A-M.com. Find out everything about me, including latest projects I have going on, a textbook slash training manual for the National MFT Licensure Exam, as well as Bringing Common Factors to Life in Couple and Family Therapy. Latest book with Dr. Adrian Blow, talking about the common bonds that unite us as relational healers and systemic therapy. And it's a great resource for those kind of perfecting their game as far as working with couples and families and also neophytes into the world of couple and family therapy from Rutledge Books. It's honored to do this podcast, talk with great leaders in our field each and every episode. And I thank you for listening. And until next time, my friends, stay safe, stay systemic.